2 Samuel chapter 23, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now, these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabet, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino, the Esnite, because he had killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand was stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite, the Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Then three of the thirty chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adjulam and the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it, These things were done by the three mighty men. Now, Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of the three? Therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name among the three mighty men. He was honored, he was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. Azael, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shammah, the Haradite. Alika, the Haradite. Helez, the Palatite, Ira, the son of Ikesh, the Tekoite, 
Abiezar, the Anathothite, Mebunei, the Hushathite, Zalman, the Ahothite, Maharei, the Netophathite, Eleb, the son of Bana, the Netophathite, Etei, the son of Rebei, from Gibeah, of the children of Benjamin, Benei, a Pyrathonite, Hadei, from the brooks of Gash, Abi, Albon, the Arabathite, Atzmetheth, the Baromithite, and as Alistair Begg would say, and a bunch of other people who you can't even in your wildest dreams begin to pronounce their name. Abi, Albon, the Arabathite, Atzmetheth, the Barahumite, Elibaka, the Shaalbonite, of the sons of Jashan, Jonathan, Shema, the Haratite, Ayam, the son of Sharar, the Haratite, Elephalet, the son of Ahazbai, the son of Mahakathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Itzrei, the Carmelite, Parei, the Arbite, Ichgal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Benai, the Gadite, Zelak, the Ammonite, Naharei, the Barathite, armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zariah, Ira, the Ithrite, Garib, the Ithrite, and Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. Chapter 23 has been called David's last song or David's final words. And the chapter is divided into two parts. It begins with the song of David in chapter 23 verses 1 through 7. And then it goes from the song of David to the soldiers of David in verses 8 through 39. And it begins, obviously, with the statement, now these are the last words of David. Now, does this mean that these are the final words that expelled from his mouth on the day that he died? Probably not. Probably what this means is it's the final song. It's the final poetic composition that David had as he comes towards the end of his life and he begins to reflect on the circumstances of his life. You know, we live in a culture and in a world where people ascribe great value to the last things that a person says. You've probably wondered about your own life and your own circumstances. And as you make your way into the future, make no mistake about it. One day you will wake up and it will be the last day that you have a cup of coffee or tea. It will be the last time that you prepare a meal. It will be the last time that you do whatever your routine happens to encompass and you will have some final words. As a matter of fact, some people have made a study of famous last words. Voltaire, who is one of the most famous atheists and, and skeptics and haters of God who ever lived. On his deathbed, he addressed his doctor and he said, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months to live. And the doctor replied, sir, you cannot live six weeks. Voltaire replied, then I shall go to hell. And you will go with me. And after he said those words, he died. Sir Francis Newport, who was the head of an English infidel club, said to those who gathered around his dying bed, he said an infidel club was a famous club in the middle 1800s. They, they made sport of God and the things of God and, and, and the gospel of God and and he gathered those around his dying bed and he said, you need not tell me that there's no God for I know that there is none and I am in his angry presence. Yeah, we laugh. You go, hey, there's no God but I'm in his angry presence. You need not tell me there is no God for I know that there is none. You need not tell me there is no hell for I already feel my soul slipping into its fires. Wretches, cease your idle talk about there being no hope for me. I know that I'm lost forever. Now contrast that with the death of a saint. 
Compare that with Frances Havergal, the songwriter. She lived and moved in the word of God. On the last day of her life, she asked a friend to open up the Bible to the book of Isaiah to chapter 42. And when the friend began reading through Isaiah chapter 42, in verse 6, she heard her friend say, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee. Keep thee. Miss Havergal stopped her. She whispered, called, held, kept. She said, I can go home on that. And that's exactly what she did do. She went home. Now, these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. You know, in the Old Testament, many Old Testament patriarchs will give final blessings. When Jacob came to the end of his life, he called his sons and he blessed them in Genesis chapter 49, verses 1 through 33. And many of you know the story, how he gathers the children together and he begins to pronounce a, 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 a blessing on the tribes of Jacob and Azure and Naphtali. And when Moses came to the end of his career, he gave a blessing to each of the tribes of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 1 through 29. Moses, by the way, before he pronounced the blessing, he composed a song in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 1 through 52. When Joshua came to the end of his life, he called the tribes to himself as he was nearing death, and then he made a covenant with them. And that covenant is described in Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 through 28. But here, David begins to reminisce, if you will, on the titles that he wished to be remembered by. And he says, look, when you think about me, I want you to think about me as the son of Jesse, the man raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. David describes his humble origins, and then he begins to describe how God took him from obscurity and then raised him up to a position where he could be used by God. Many of you are familiar with the story of Thomas Jefferson. And um, you may not know, but at the age of 27, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. On his tombstone, this is what he asked to be written. Quote, Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the statute of Virginia for religious freedom. In other words, here's what he's saying. Out of everything that I've ever done, this is what I want to be remembered for. The Declaration of Independence. The statute of, of Virginia for religious freedom. And you may not know what the statute of, of, uh, of religious freedom is. But remember, it was Thomas Jefferson who basically made the mechanism whereby American citizens would have the right to free expression. And then he said, and the father of the University of Virginia. And then it gave his birth date. And of course he died July 4th, 1826. When David talks about his titles, it reflects his humility. He says, David, the son of Jesse. And Jesse, his father, was a humble farmer. And David's rise came from the Lord. David was anointed by God. In other words, David came to a position of promise through the actual uplifting of the Lord, not through some self-serving or self-seeking gain. And he refers to himself as the sweet singer of Israel. And I think that the reason why is because of his love for the Lord. In other words, remember, he's a poet and a songwriter. David spent much of his life under the stars singing songs to the God of heaven. And of course, it reflects a person who has a deep, personal intimacy with the Lord. And the future son of David causes every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to experience something of that wonder. As a matter of fact, 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul writes and he says, Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us in God. In other words, Paul writes and he says, You, as a person who have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, God has anointed you also. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2, David writes, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. David makes a reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to think about what 2 Samuel 23, 2 really means. David realizes that God used David... To speak through him to a world that was listening. Most of you know Psalm 23 by heart. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. David claims that God gave him words. David claims that God gave him a divine revelation, a specific revelation, a supernatural communication. For those of you who maybe didn't get to participate in the, uh, in the Veritas conference, I spoke on Psalm 19, which was one of David's psalms, where he talks about the reality of God speaking. The heavens declare the glory of God, it says in Psalm 19. The firmament knows us. Shows his handiwork, day unto day utter speech, night unto night knowledge. In verse 7 it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. David declared that God speaks. And it's a remarkable declaration that God has something to say. That God has something to say in creation. That God has something to say in our conscience. But it's even more remarkable that God has something to say to each and every one of us. And no wonder the New Testament says in Hebrews that God, who in times past spoke through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his own dear son. And so David claims God gave him words a divine revelation, a specific revelation, a supernatural communication. I think most of you know that the Bible claims to be the word of God. And by the way, Jesus believed that exact notion. And this is one of the clearest claims for inspiration made anywhere in the Bible. David didn't simply speak his own words. He claims that he was speaking the words of God and that God's spirit guided David. Now we live in a world where people believe in the supernatural, but they don't believe it in the way that the Bible represents it. Some people believe that you can channel spirit beings from other dimensions and that these spirit beings are able to communicate to you. He isn't talking about channel channeling spirit beings, he's talking about being used by God as an instrument in order to speak. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where it says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means that the word of God is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. In other words, the Bible in its whole, as well as the parts, claims to be a divine communication from God himself. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For prophecy, or the truth spoken by prophets, never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Peter is addressing the issue, how do you know that these people didn't wake up from falafel madness, and maybe they were having some sort of garbanzo bean breakdown and they decide that they're going to make this whole nonsense up but that's not what happened the bible makes it abundantly clear that god speaks and that he has superintended that communication and then in verse three david says the god of israel said the rock of israel spoke to me he who rules over men must be just 
ruling in the fear of God. In other words, he said, God has spoken to me, and these are some of the words that God has said. Now, does David make an Old Testament reference to the Trinity here? I'm going to suggest that he does. Remember, he says, the Spirit of God spoke to me. I believe that this is the Holy Spirit. Who is the God of Israel? Jehovah. Who is the rock of Israel? It's David's future famous son. And so for those of you who wonder, hey, if the Trinity is true, then why doesn't it ever appear in the Bible? Look at 2 Samuel chapter 23, where here there's a reference to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the rock. Remember in the New Testament, he is the chief cornerstone. We've been learning about that in 1 Peter on Sunday morning. And I want to remind you of something, that Jesus never referred to extra-biblical references to bolster his teachings. When Jesus was teaching, he spoke the word of God and the words of God. Ed Young described Jesus' approach to the Bible as, as forming a whole, an organic unity, and that in both the parts and the whole, the revelation was binding and complete in authority. So Jesus himself extends the authority to the whole thought, the particular words, down to the specific phrases, down to the very letters of the Bible. And clearly, Jesus had access to the popular literature of the past and contemporary writers. But I want you to note something, that in his earthly ministry, he never appeals to them. When Jesus wants to say something, Jesus says, this is what the Lord says. You know, Norm Geisler intimated it on Sunday when he was speaking here, when he said, you know what the most popular phrase in the New Testament is? The most quoted phrase. It is written. It is written. In other words, Jesus believed that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy came from God. Jesus believed in the interpretation and application of the Bible to be true and authoritative and reliable. And Jesus rejected the false man-made traditions that contradicted or circumvented the word of God. Jesus never quotes apocryphal literature. Jesus quotes, by the way, from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Well, does this mean that Jesus only believed that version was inspired by God? I don't think so. But what it does mean is that he quotes the Septuagint as legitimate and authoritative and reliable, the word of God. He calls the scripture the word of God in Mark 7, verse 13, where he says, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down and many such things you do. He was criticizing the religious leaders. Because they refused to embrace what the Bible had to say. And how did David view the rulers? David learned through divine revelation and experience that a ruler must be just. A leader must lead in the fear of God. And so God removes Samuel, places David to be the king of Israel, and David realizes something. The weight of the revelation of God begins to bear down him, and the Lord says to him, you have to be just. You must rule in the fear of God. You mean afraid that God is going to hurt him? No. In the reverential awe that there is a God who takes into consideration all of the judgments and all of the decisions that are made. And by the way, doesn't that apply to everyone? Doesn't it apply to fathers as they make decisions about their children? Doesn't it apply to mothers as they bring up their children? Doesn't that apply to governors and presidents? Doesn't that apply to Congress and judges? Is there a God who is going to hold people accountable for the stewardship that he's placed in their care? The answer is yes. Well, what if they don't believe in God? It doesn't matter if you, if you don't believe in God because God believes in you. God made you and placed you in the circumstance that God placed you in. And God expects you to act just. And God expects you to act in the constant consideration that one day you're going to stand before God and give an account of your life. You know, it was... 
Thomas Jefferson, who who denied the supernatural in the Bible, who still had the sense to say, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. The Bible says in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15, do not pervert justice. Do you know why it says in Leviticus 19, 15, do not pervert justice? Because justice can be perverted, can't it? In other words, there is a right way of doing something and people can wickedly twist that right way to accommodate their own fear, their own suspicion, or their own desires. It was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King who wrote, True peace is not merely the absence of tension. It is the presence of of justice. Blaise Pascal wrote, justice and power must be brought together so that whatever is just may be powerful and whatever is powerful may may be just. Now, here's what David is thinking as he's closing out his final song. Remember, God has taken me from a place of obscurity and he's placed me in a position of power and he's reminded me that I can't Take advantage of that power. That I must be wise and just and think carefully about what God wants. God's people depended on the ruler the same way the earth depends on the sunlight. The king was to be like the tender grass coming up out of the earth. Well, what does that mean? Well, Palestine is a desert. It's, it kind of looks like Utah or Wyoming. I don't know if you've ever gone to that half-baked part of Wyoming where you get to Cheyenne and then you head east towards, like you're going towards Utah. And there's just this vast stretch of desert that's interrupted by little patches of green. That's why he says in verse 4, And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. What he's saying is, just like the desert relies on the sun, the rains bring the grass And a just and a righteous ruler brings nourishment and sustenance. God's people depended on the ruler the same way the earth depends on sunlight. We live in a world where we depend on the people who are the decision makers. Whether it's a police officer who pulls you over or whether it's a doctor who takes um, and diagnoses you. Whether it is a mayor who runs your city. Whether it's a governor who runs your state. Whether it's a president who runs your country. Whether it's a judge who adjudicates righteousness. And when people in power refuse to embrace justice and who refuse to do what's right. It creates a scorching desert in the life of individuals, in the life of a community, and in the life of a nation. And David knows the truth. He says in verse 5, Although my house is not so with God. Do you understand what he's saying? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm getting ready to die. Everything that I've done, perfect. Those of you who have been following along in in 2 Samuel, has David lived a perfect life? Has he had some pretty serious setbacks? Has he made some serious mistakes? Big time. Although my house is not so with God. Look what he says in verse 5. Yet he, that's the Lord, that's the rock, that's Jehovah, Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. Do you understand what David just said? I've been a jerk and an idiot and I have failed to live up to the expectations of the relationship that I entered into with God. But guess what? He's made an everlasting covenant with me. You know what a covenant is? It's an agreement between two people. And David has failed in the agreement. 
But God had made a covenant with David. That God was going to establish his throne. And that God was going to provide a Messiah through the physical body of David. By the way, did God make good on his covenant with David? Time, space. One generation would pass and another generation was, would pass. As a matter of fact, in the, in the New Testament, it records some 14 generations pushing forward into the future. From the time of David to the birth of Jesus Christ, there was a thousand years. David knows he's fallen short in the area of justice. He knows he's fallen short in the area of complete blessing. But David appeals to the fact that God has made a covenant with him. And that covenant is based on the perfect faithfulness of God. Here's what he's counting on. And you need to understand this. Is he counting on his faithfulness towards God? No. He's, is he counting on God's faithfulness towards him? Yes. Why is that important to you? Because if you're counting on your faithfulness and your goodness, as far as provision, be prepared to be disappointed. Because the moment that you make a mistake and the moment that you're unfaithful, there goes the covenant. But God is gracious. Remember, God has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be the perfect provision for your forgiveness and for your sin. That's why David says what David says. The covenant was not made on David's imperfect faithfulness. As a matter of fact, David Gusick writes, and I quote, David knew that his own obedience was not enough to be a foundation for all his salvation and all his desire. In other words, he goes, hey, you know what? And even though I've wrote all of these great songs, and even though I've been an imperfect emperor, even though I've done things wickedly and wrongly, imperfectly, and incompletely, I'm counting on salvation to come from you. And that becomes your position as a follower of David's future famous son of Jesus. I keep reminding you, but remember the opening sentence in the book of Matthew as the Old Testament opens is Jesus Christ, the son of David. That gap, that son, is going to march into the future a thousand years. And God is going to make good his promise because he's going to provide a savior who's going to be the satisfying solution to every wicked and wrong, imperfect thing that David ever does. The good news for you, every wicked, wrong, and imperfect thing that you've ever done become satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. Gusick goes on and he says, David's light dimmed towards the end of his life, but it was by no means extinguished. He shined until the end. He then quotes G. Campbell Morgan, quote, in the divine dealing with us, there is no mistake there is no lapse. Nothing has been permitted which has not been made to serve the highest purpose. This is so even in our failures. If like David in true penance, we have forsaken them and confessed them. It is certainly so of all our sorrow and all our trial. You might be wondering how David could or how God could possibly use your failures or use your sorrows or use your trials trials to bring you to a place of dependence upon him but that's exactly what God does if you'll let him this is why the New Testament says God is causing all things to work together for good for those who love him and you may not think that the life circumstances that you may have grown up in well how did God use that for good how did God use the death of my spouse for good how did God use the rebellion of my children for good how did God use the loss of my job for good how is God using even my refusal to obey him in specific areas for good for David, remember, he confesses his sin and he forsakes his sin. By the way, is that how you deal with your failure? Instead of pretending that it doesn't exist, you go, look, clearly, Lord, I've messed up in a huge way. 
But I'm going to believe what the Bible says. That if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me. And then look what it says. But the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away. Because they cannot be taken with hands. He's describing the sons of rebellion. Literally in the Hebrew text it says the sons of Belial. Do you remember who the sons of Belial are? This is the sons of the devil. As a matter of fact... These are the same words that the religious leaders accuse Jesus, the future famous son of David, when he performs miracles. They accuse him of performing miracles through the power of Satan. But in verses 6 and 7, here he, he refers to the people who rebel against God, who disobey God, who run away from God and never return to God. Now I know that the rebels may be the mascot at Columbine High School. But rebellion is never looked on favorably by God. David contrasts the righteous ruler. That's what's happening. He contrasts the righteous ruler and the just ruler in the beginning with the sons of rebellion. And he draws to our attention that, that rebellion is, is shameless. He likens them to the idea of picking up thorns without any gloves. Now you've got to understand, thorns in the Middle East aren't like little stickers. Some are two to three inches long. They're more like nails and they can very much pierce your flesh. By the way, what do you do with thorns? When you have thorns in your garden, when you have thorns around your house, do you gather them together and treat them like the weeds and the pests that they are and burn them? That's exactly what's spoken of here. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear. That they sh and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. David says, you know what? Just like human beings burn weeds and destroy pests. There's going to come a time when the righteous will be rewarded. But make no mistake about it. The, re the rebellious will be punished. That's the point that he's making. And in verse 8, it says, These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashbeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was also called Adino, which is a lot easier to say. No wonder they called him Adino, the Esnite. Doesn't Adino sort of sound like an Italian name? Hey, Adino, where you at? Now, this story is also contained in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verses 10 through 47. You have to understand something, that when David attaches this role of the mighty men, he's not just bringing attention to the leaders, but he's bringing attention to the followers. And just like in ancient times and in modern times, we live in a world where people need heroes. Hollywood loves to do films about comic book characters and heroes. Every culture and society has its heroes. In every great city in America, you can see people sporting their favorite jerseys, whether it's hockey or baseball or basketball. You can't go into a stadium and you can't walk out without people wearing the name of their hero on some some sports jacket. So who were David's mighty men? David lists um, officers who are in charge of the state or the affairs of the government. They're listed, by the way, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, in 2 Samuel chapter 20. In addition to these leaders, David has three chief officers, 34 other mighty men. The officers, by the way, are listed in 1 Chronicles chapter 11 and 1 Chronicles chapter 27. The point of listing all of these people, David wants you to understand something. The things that God has done in his life has not been done alone. I want you to think about that for just a moment. What David is in effect saying is, I had help. And by the way, if you're a leader, you need help. If you do Sunday school, you need help. If you work with children, you need help. No matter what the nature of, of the ministry that God has given you, typically you're going to need help. You might think, well, I pray, I don't need help. Oh, no, you do need help. Because it says that the fervent, effect, the, the fervent effective prayers 
<laughs> the fervent effectual prayers of the righteous man avail much. But just like there's power in a single prayer, there's power in corporate prayer. So that's the point. David didn't accomplish his deeds alone. By the way, Paul in the New Testament had help. Whenever you read the New Testament, Paul, when he's preaching the gospel in almost every single circumstance, in every single book, he'll tell you about Timothy. He'll tell you about Titus. He'll tell you about Barnabas. He'll tell you about Silas. He talks about John Mark. And even though you may not remember the names and they're not so well known, he talks about Onesiphorus. He talks about Epaphras. He talks about Epaphrodites. He talks about Tertius and Segundus, Primus. Now, by the way, in, in the ancient world, Primus meant one, Segundus meant two, and Tertius meant three. Sometimes people will just name their kid. Okay, you're number one, you're number two, and you're number three. Dude, don't I even deserve like a whole name? In the ancient world, they sometimes wouldn't give you a name until you were a year old because they didn't, they didn't know if you were going to live. Can you imagine? You start to get attracted to a child, and then the child dies on you. You see, in the world, it was a very difficult world. It was a world where relationships mattered. Now, if you look at the three mighty men who are mentioned in verse 8, Adino, Eleazar in verses 9 and 10, and Shema in verse 11, rather than go through this whole litany of names again, I want to ask you a question. We're going to do a little inductive Bible study here. Is, as you look in verse 8 and you look at verses 9 and 10 and 11, what do all three of these mighty men have in common? They're all warriors. That's something that they have in common. Number two, in each case, each won a victory. That's something that they had in common. They fought. They won. But I want to point something out. You know what else the three had in common? They fought, they won in the midst of overwhelming odds. And this is a key point for each and every one of you. They fought, they won in the midst of overwhelming odds. Each triumph in the very presence of utter exhaustion. Each one was victorious. And I want you to note something else. They are victorious when the people of God and the children of God were living in fear and confusion and retreat. That's the other thing that all three of them have in common. These were victories that were won because of their friendship and relationship with David. But also because in the friendship and relationship with David, they began to take on the mindset of David and the characteristics of David and the love of David and the faith that David had. Now, this becomes good, uh, important for each one of you who are followers of David's son. You see, when you become a Christian, make no mistake about it, there's going to be battles and there's going to be exhausting battles. And there's going to be exhausting battles where under the circumstances, it looks like you have no hope of winning. But then you wake up and in the face of impossible odds, in the face of utter exhaustion, you believe God and you're willing to go forward when everybody else is going backwards. That's the point that's taking place. Look at verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He's called Adino, the Esnite, because he killed 800 men at one time. Sounds like an Italian guy. Now, to be fair, in the book of Chronicles, it says that he killed 300 people, which is true. I don't know. But he presided over the councils of war. He's the chief military advisor. And note, before he advised people how to fight, he fought. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, I think you should do the work of an, of an evangelist. But it's another thing to do evangelism, huh? It's one thing to say to a person, hey, you know what I think? I think you should teach a Bible study. But imagine a person who's never done a Bible study saying that. 
You see, the point that becomes for the person who engages in the battle, you tell people to pray, do you pray? You tell people to read the Bible, do you read the Bible? You tell people to serve, do you serve? And that becomes the point. He has wisdom. He has strength. He has valor. And like Samson, he has supernatural strength. This guy is sort of the ancient Israeli version of Walker, Texas Ranger meets Rambo meets pick whatever hero you want. And like Paul the Apostle in the New Testament who considers himself the least of the New Testament apostles, but yet he's the chief because Paul is pulling down the strongholds of the enemy. Eleazar, the son of Dodo in verse 9. We don't know a whole lot about him, but he was one of the three who stood in the face of the overwhelming odds. Now again, in verse 9, after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Aohite, one of the mighty men who defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel had retreated. Now think about that. He's one of the guys, when everyone else is going backwards, he is going forwards with confidence in the Lord. Now think about that for just a moment. People give up. People give in. Eleazar manifests courage when courage is needed most. And when is courage needed most? i got to tell you something. Courage is needed most It's when everybody stops coming and stops giving and stops praying and stops singing. And you say, I don't feel like praying and I don't feel like singing and I don't feel like giving and I don't feel like going and I don't feel like doing and I don't feel like serving and I don't feel like any of those things. When others are backing down, When others are running, and look in the text, it's the men of Israel who are backing down. It's the men of Israel who are on the retreat. And why did they run away? Take your pick. People run away for a lot of different reasons, don't they? They're afraid. There's overwhelming odds. It's unbelief. But this is the time when true courage manifests itself. We need the most courage when others display the least amount of courage. You know, it's easy to trust Jesus. When you're surrounded by praying Christians and, and singing Christians and praising Christians, it's easy to come into the church and you hear me speak and you go, you know what, when I'm reading the Bible with Pastor Gino or when I'm reading the Bible via the tape, when I'm reading the Bible with my friends and my family, there's a sense of courage and strength that wells up inside of me. It's when I'm at work that it becomes a problem. It's when I'm at school when it becomes a problem. It's when it's when I'm with people who hate Christians and Christianity that I have the most problems. But you'll note, Eliezer's hand is glued to the sword. That's what it says. He arose, he attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. Now think about that. He kills so many people so quickly that when it comes time for the battle to be over, he can't even let go of the sword. You know what I see in this? I see an analogy for the Christian. For the Christian, what is the sword of the Spirit? Who knows? It's the Word of God. Are you so familiar with the Bible that it's second nature? Is it, are you so familiar with the Bible that when you're thinking of Genesis and you're thinking of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, when you're going through First and Second Samuel, when you're going through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you're going through the litany of scriptures, it's as if the scriptures are glued to you. This is why memorization becomes such an important thing. Eleazar's hand is glued to the sword. When our hands are tired, when when, when we run the risk of dropping our sword, but Eleazar would not, he could not. I want you to think about this for just a moment. This is a man who will not drop the sword until the job is finished. And that's what he's talking about. 
It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, Remember Mr. Sankey's hymn. You may not remember it. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Dare to be an Eleazar. And go forth and smite the Philistines alone. You hear that song and you go, What? I Dare to be an Eleazar and go forth and smite the Philistines alone. You may have never known what that song meant. But it's from 2 Samuel chapter 23. Of a man who kept fighting and fighting and fighting when other people were running and hiding. He's fighting. And remember, our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. It isn't your unbelieving husband. It isn't your unbelieving wife. It isn't your unbelieving friends. It isn't the unbelieving circumstances that you may think that you're facing. That They're not your enemy. These are the people that God has called you to love and to reach. Spurgeon says, you will soon find that there are others in the house who have concealed their sentiments. But when they see you coming forward, they will openly side on the Lord's side. Many cowards are skulking about. Try to shame them. Many are undecided. Let them see a brave man and he will be the standard bearer when, around whom which they will, are rally. You be the one. You be the one who say, hey, you know what? I believe the Bible's true. I believe the promises of God are true. I believe that the hope that's found in Jesus Christ is true. <laughs> he goes on. Verse 11. And after him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Hararite, the Philistines, and gathered together into a troop that there was a piece of ground full of lentils so that the people fled from the Philistines. Do you understand what's happening? And this is a person who is defending a field. Now, I need you to understand why he's defending the field. Because unless he defends the field, no one will eat. You know, it's the surest way to destroy your enemy. It's to remove the food supply. And this is what this person does. He stands. He refuses to give up the source of nourishment. He refuses to give up the food supply that's going to make it necessary for the people to survive. Remember when Jesus was approached by his friends and his disciples and they said, Hey, we're going to go into town and we're going to get you something to eat. And, and, and they come back and Jesus says, I have food that you have no idea about. <laughs> a, man, a band of marauding Philistines attack the food supply. They're attacking the people of Israel. One guy refuses to give up. Acts 14.3 says, Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Do you know why I have spent my life studying the Bible? Believing the Bible, sharing the Bible, teaching the Bible, it's because it's your food supply. It's your sustenance. It's your nourishment. It's the thing that will feed you on the inside if you will allow it to take place. Dr. King in a speech said, Courage is an inner resolution to go forward in spite of obstacles and frightening situations. Cowardice is a submissive surrender to circumstance. Courage breeds creative self-affirmation. Cowardice produces destructive self-abnegation. Courage faces fear and thereby masters it. Cowardice represses fear and is thereby mastered by it. Courageous men never lose the zest of living even though their situation is zestless. Cowardly men, overwhelmed by the uncertainties of life, lose the will to live. We must constantly build dikes of courage to hold back the flood of fear. That's the testimony that's here. When everybody else is going backward, they're going forward. And in verses 13 through 17, it talks about the caves where David drinks from Bethlehem. You heard the story. Remember, he's, they're fighting. They're in the midst of this battle. David is old. 
And he's remembering his youth. He's remembering what it was like to be at the soda fountain in Bethlehem. Oh, you know, can you imagine what it would be like to go to the gates of Bethlehem? Can you imagine what it would be like to have a a drink of that cold, clear water? It would make me feel young again. Some of you know what that's like. Maybe you grew up in a circumstance and you're old enough to remember a soda fountain and an ice cold Coke on the back of your neck. When Coke was only a dime, some of you are looking at me, I remember when it was a nickel. I know, you, you are fully old. But David is remembering his youth. And David says, I wish I could enjoy that kind of refreshment. And I want you to understand something. These three men risk their life. They go behind enemy lines. They have to make their way through the fountain. They have to stealthily come up and they get the drink and they bring it back to David. And David is so overwhelmed with the gesture. He can't even bring himself to drink the water. Because now, this isn't just simply water that he drank when he was young. It becomes holy water. It becomes sacred water. It becomes the thing that men are willing to risk their life in order to make their master and their leader satisfied. Don't you wish that that was your sentiment with David's future famous son, Jesus? Can you imagine when Jesus speaks to you and you hear the words of Jesus and you hear the commands of Jesus, you hear the promises of Jesus, you hear the desires of Jesus, and you're able to say, Jesus, your wish is my command. Hey, I want you, you know what would make me really happy? If you would share Christ with your neighbor, if you would share Christ with your friend, if you would share Christ with your unbelieving family member, and you say, Jesus, your wish is my command. Are there dangers? Are there dangers as you approach and then obtain what it is that Jesus desires? Yes, there is. And so from 13 through 17, that's exactly the point that's being made. And then from from verse, as you go all the way past verse 17... To verse 18, now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, the chief of the other three, he lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name. Was he not the most honored of the three? Therefore, he became the captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. So again, they're ranking these men, these followers of David who show courage and and care under pressure. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds, he killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. This is the outer skirts of the borders. He's gone down into a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. He kills an Egyptian, a spectacular man. And the way he does it, he takes his own weapon from him and kills him with his own weapon. You know why this is important to you and me? I bring in a person like Dr. Norm Geisler, who is one of the leading philosophical thinkers on the planet Earth when it comes to evangelical theory and evangelical philosophy, is maybe the most noteworthy person in the area of philosophical presuppositionalism. And he takes the arguments of the atheist and the agnostic and he turns it on their head. He uses their arguments in order to defeat them. You know what? The last person in the world you want to argue with is a Norm Geisler. The atheist, the agnostic, you take away their philosophical presuppositionalist and he kills you with your own sword. This is why Christians need to learn about science. And this is why Christians need to learn about philosophy. And this is why Christians need to learn about medicine. Not so much that they abandon their deeply held convictions concerning the word of God. But ladies and gentlemen, you need to be bigger and brighter and more prepared than your worst adversary. That's the point. All of these people that are talked about. He begins the laundry list. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did. Verse 23, he's more honored than the 30, but he didn't attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. That means his personal guard. It's sort of like the secret service. Azael, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. 
Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, that's the hometown. Shema, Elika, the Herodite, Halez. As you go down the, the, the list, I want to draw particular attention to a couple of people. One is in verse 34. Alephalet, the son of Abishai, the son of Machthite. Iliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Why does he deserve special attention? Remember, this man, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, he's the father of Bathsheba. He's Bathsheba's dad. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Uriah is also listed in the list. When David heard about Bathsheba's relationship to Uriah and Eliam and Ahithophel, it should have put any thoughts of betrayal completely out of his mind. Now, I want you to think about this. Here is a person. This person loves me and fights for me. This person loves me and fights for me. This person loves me and fights for me. What were you thinking, how could you betray someone who has given so much time and so much energy and so much love and so much sacrifice? David should have been able to say, this, it would be, I would be crazy to enter into this relationship with this girl. And then he enters into this relationship with this girl. And Uriah is even mentioned at the end. By the way, they didn't come to David as great men. Remember when they first came to David, they were described as in distress, in debt, discontented. But then they became radically changed. Because they began to follow David. And as they followed David, they began to fulfill the plan of God and, and the word of God. Perhaps your greatest legacy won't be what you did. Perhaps your greatest legacy will be what you did with the people who you influenced. You may not do great things for God, but your daughter, your son, your neighbor, your friend. You know, I read the story of a lady whose husband was absent in, in, the, in the late 1800s. She lost both of her children to a cholera epidemic. And she laid her children out with a mother's tenderness. She spread a sheet over them and she waited at the door for her husband's return. And when she met her husband, she said, a person lent me some jewels. And now he wants me to give them back. What shall I do? And her husband replied, return them. Return them by all means. And then she led the way silently and she uncovered the forms of her children. You will face times when people will mentally and emotionally and physically and spiritually be retreating, and someone has to be able to go forward. Alan Redpath writes, The triumph of the church as a whole depends upon the personal victory of every Christian. In other words, your victory, your life, your personal testimony are important to the God, cause of God today. What happens in New Guinea, down in the Amazon jungle, over in the disturbed Congo, is not unrelated to what happens in your own personal relationship with God and your personal battle against the forces of darkness. Victory for the church on the whole world front depends upon victory in your life and mine. And you will go forward when everyone else is going back. And you will hold the instrument that will give you the ability to fight the battle that no one else could fight. And your greatness and your remembrance will be in direct proportion to your faithfulness. Not to David, but to David's son.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these lessons, Lord, for the words that are given to us in the life and the times of David. That, Lord, you kept your promise with David. And because you kept your promise with David, you'll keep your promise with us. You promised to send us a Savior, David's son. You made a covenant that you would forgive our sin, that you would put them away, that you would give us a hope that instead of being in debt and desperation and despair, that we could live in grace and mercy and love and hope because of what Jesus has done. And so again, I pray for that person who is facing a tremendous battle. Lord, I pray that you'd give them courage. Lord, I pray that they would be strong and full of courage. And that they would allow the promises of God to dwell deeply, richly in their heart on the day of confrontation. In Jesus' name.